Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we've got some big news uh, just as we get on the podcast here. It looks like Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign. Can you tell us what is really going on? Well, he's, he's out of the race. He's, uh, he's bowing to the mathematical realities. It makes Joe Biden the presumptive nominee. Uh, but what a strange set of circumstances all around this is. Uh, first of all, uh, we have now seven months until the general election, but uh, no real sense of when you can actually start campaigning again. The convention itself is up in the air. Uh, so what it means to be the presumptive nominee is in question. And Sanders, uh, intriguingly, John, this is a new one to me. He says he's going to stay on the ballot to continue to accumulate delegates to uh, to hash out his positions uh, in the party platform and other procedural matters. Now, this is a guy that's not even a Democrat, never been a Democrat, and uh, now isn't going to be running, but he is going to be asking people to continue to vote for him in a whole series of states all the way through June. That is, uh, man, that is that is got to be a tough pill for the Biden camp. Yeah, and so he'll get those delegates to fight it out in a, what, in a virtual convention? Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Whatever it is, it says that they're looking forward to platform fights of all things. Uh, you know, oh all of that God. said, he's he's getting out a lot earlier than he did four years ago, and a lot earlier than a lot of Democrats feared he might uh, this time around. Uh, and he's saying it's because of the coronavirus crisis. We have a crisis in this country, and he couldn't. He said in good conscience, ask people to continue to vote for him and to to volunteer for him when he did not have a viable path to the nomination any longer. And look, I've got to say. You know, and we've talked about this uh, throughout the course of, of the primary. I mean, he has run just one hell of a campaign and, you know, he hit the wall uh, at Super Tuesday and then this thing hits. Uh, yeah. uh, so I think under any other set of circumstances, he would have been fighting hard and campaigning full tilt right into the convention. Uh, so this is this is because, you know, Bernie Sanders has been clear. This has never really been about him. This is about a movement. It's about a movement to revolutionize uh, American politics, the Democratic Party in the process. Uh, and so, of course, he wants to continue to get delegates. And of course, he still wants to fight for the principles that he believes in. And uh, you know, he's been doing it all his life. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop at all. Um, but uh, what a strange time for politics. And Rick, I, I wonder now, as we turn our attention insofar as we have bandwidth for anything besides COVID-19 towards a general election matchup of Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. How does Biden get a message out there? And should we, uh, as news organizations and reporters, when do we start thinking in terms of equal time? Um, I mean, right now it it, it is, to coin a phrase, it's the Trump show. Yeah. Um, How do you... I, I've heard something about that. I'm glad you have a front row to that show. Um, uh, yes. at least most days. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they um, do. That's um, nice I, I want to, I want we, we'll come back to the book in a second. Cause I want to address that, that, that point. And I've talked to Biden campaign about this and you know, th- at some level they're frustrated by this, but they're also very realistic that this is a time for presidential leadership and not a time for politicking. He has been pretty active in doing interviews from his studio at his house in Delaware um, he is self-quarantining um, uh, as, uh, as someone that's in the target population, just as also as an American citizen who doesn't have another you know, essential job to go out and do every day. He is trying to abide by those rules. We know uh, this week, John, and you asked the president about this. That's that, an that interesting he had a conference. question. Is, 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 is one for president an essential job? 
<laughs> we, could, we could look for special dispensation from Dr. Fauci for that. Uh, but he had, so he had his phone call with, with President Trump. Uh, the, the view in the Biden world is that um, people will judge President Trump based on his actions in this time, not what's being said in real time about those actions. Um, they're trying to, to cast the vice president as, as helpful and productive and compassionate in this time, but they don't want him running color commentary. Uh, they don't want him asked about the hour by hour developments um, or a lot of the sideshows that the president um, creates on his own by, you know, warring with, uh, with, with governors or members of the press or what have you. Uh, they want him to, to hang out of it a little bit, recognizing that seven months is a long time uh, and that we don't know what it's going to look like uh, when, when we're coming out of this or if we'll come out of this before the election. But um, it is a, a source of a whole lot of uh, angst and consternation in democratic circles that you don't have a, a, a now presumptive democratic nominee who's out there on a more regular basis uh, providing that contrast. And they recognize that will have to change at some point. You know, when the president, I actually asked him about this, maybe Trevor can, can drop in the sound here, but I asked President Trump about this at, uh, at one of the briefings about his phone call uh, with Joe Biden. And he was, especially in Trump terms, incredibly gracious. We had a really wonderful, warm conversation. It was a very nice conversation. We talked about uh, pretty much this. This is what we talked about. This is what everyone's talking about. This is what they want to talk about. And uh, he gave me his point of view, and I fully understood that. And uh, we just had a very friendly conversation. Uh, lasted probably 15 minutes. And uh, it was really good. It was really good. Really nice. I think it was very much so. I appreciate his calling. But how do you run uh, a, a campaign in the midst of a crisis where, at least at this point, you literally can't leave the house? Uh, this is yeah, a, a, an incredible challenge. That's right. And, and and we've heard from the vice president himself that he thinks they maybe have to do a virtual convention uh, in, in, in August. Uh, the Democrats have already pushed back their convention date. You know, all of these rules are out. And we saw uh, in, in a really kind of awful way what it means to vote in the time of public health crisis. I mean, those lines in, in Wisconsin oh, were just heartbreaking that people uh, literally, um, in the words of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to paraphrase Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had to choose between their constitutional right and their health, uh, particularly jeopardizing their lives by going out and casting a ballot because of the utter dysfunction in Wisconsin that kept election day on against everyone's better judgment. Uh, that's the, what a lot of people I've been talking to in the last few days are worried about that being uh, just a preview of what's to come as a whole lot of pitched partisan battles play out. The president saying he thinks early voting is a, is a democratic plot and uh, that, that mail-in voting is a, is a recipe for fraud. Of course, he himself mailed in his ballot uh, in, the, in the primary in Florida, but it, it does become a D versus R issue very quickly. But John, wait a second. I, I, I'm having trouble finding your book. What's going What's going on? Is this Is this well, you know? Are you remedying this? What's going on? Well, Rick, you know, and and, and we've studied this, and I, I think that there have been political scientists that have spent devoted the better part of careers to this. We're something we call the powerhouse politics uh, bounce, and and we devoted yes. our last our last episode. And if you got if you bothered didn't hear it, I think it was one of the most illuminating interviews. Uh, on my book, and I mean that seriously, uh, with Rick, who, who of course saw the chapters as I was writing them, and and, and was an important part of, of the process of, of me thinking through how I was going to, you know, how I was going to turn this experience into a book. So, what happened after Powerhouse Politics last week? I mean, 
it went to number one overall on Amazon. Uh, that, that, that may have happened slightly before the podcast, but you know what I mean. Um, yes. It, uh, it bounced, and Amazon uh, for a while listed the book as backordered, temporarily out of stock. And right now, as we speak, it's listed as completely sold out on Amazon. So uh, I've never I, heard of that before. Uh, that, that doesn't. I mean, I mean, I guess Amazon's not that big of an operation. I don't know. I think it was a big. <laughs> Um, We're not. But, or, or uh, I will report. I will report that my, you know, my mom, loyal listener Esther Klein on Long Island broke. She wouldn't even. She wouldn't even go to the grocery store to buy tomatoes or onions. But she broke quarantine to buy your book. She is uh, looking forward to an autographed copy. So th- it's possible to get copies of this book. Still, so we should you, say you just have to work hard. Get it because how did your mom get it? Because this is an important lesson. Because because you can get the book and actually you could get it today. Uh, but but to tell how, how did your mom get the book? Well, she online ordered it. Barnes and Noble got curbside pickup uh, at the at the at the local big box bookstore. It's so there, there's copies floating around out there. I feel like they're they're going to be you know at a premium. These first edition copies. It's like uh, owning you know a, a first edition Fitzgerald <laughs> or a Hemingway, right? This is this is going to be a big deal. Well, the, the the book is now already in its third printing, just entering its second week, uh, but. Barnes and Noble has plenty of stock and they are doing free delivery on the book, which is great. But they also, if you are in a location near a Barnes and Noble, uh, those Barnes and Noble stores, many of them are open for curbside pickups. So you could order it online, just like your mom did. You go there, they bring it out to you. Boom, you're done. Uh, so, you know, hopefully we can, but I, I just, I, I feel badly because, you know, people that, uh, that aren't accustomed to that. And we so many people have, become addicted to amazon prime that's how you get just about everything uh but you know it's 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 uh amazon is having clearly some issue with the supply chain and and my book and toilet paper are both hard to get a get a hold of on amazon does this does this happen to first-rate reporters or second-rate reporters or is this <laughs> you know I mean, as, as the president said and, and actually trevor do you have that clip handy how long has that person been in government Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, I see. You didn't tell me that, John. You didn't tell me that. Did serve in the previous administration. You mean the Obama administration. Thank you for telling me that. See, there's a typical fake news deal. You asked me when she was appointed. I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter. And what you just said is a disgrace, okay? You asked me, you said, sir, just got appointed. Take a look at what you said now. I said, when did they, when did this person, how long in government? Well, it was appointed in the Obama administration. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. You will never make it. Never going to make it. I'm, you know, I've, I've been saying that for a while, but, you know, I'm glad to have a presidential stamp of approval behind it. I, I, I would say on a slightly serious note on, on, on this, I mean, you write in your book about, you know, tangling with the president and uh, over the course of, you know, 20 plus years, but um, you shared the story uh, uh, just last week about kind of the, the, you know, the, the, the little off camera exchanges that you have with the president, even when he's insulting you. Like last time it was a cutie pie, uh, this time third, third rate reporter, but these, these wars with the press, I mean, he's picking fights out there and he must be thinking he's getting some out of something out of that. I think, I think that, you know, he's not overly strategic. He does kind of go, go with his instincts, but, uh, and, and he does, he is genuinely irritated by what he sees as, uh, uh press coverage of this crisis specifically, uh, that is putting too much blame for things that are going wrong on him. 
Um, but uh, but clearly, I think that in, in, in this case, he saw an opportunity uh, to deflect from the question at hand and create another story about, you know, clashes with the press, which, you know, cl- you know, it's it, it create another story about clashes with the press. And of course, those stories are meaningless. I mean, it doesn't matter if he insults me or if he insults Peter Alexander or if he insults you, me, Michelle Sindor. I mean, we're all, you know, professionals and we ask our questions, we continue on with the story, but it creates a distraction and you don't have to address the issue at hand. And the issue at hand here was the continued and still to this day, Rick, problem with coronavirus testing. Now we're at a point where it's kind of too late to really think it, you know, it matters. And now we may see some real progress now that there is this new, you know, test from, uh, you know, Abbott Laboratories uh, that can get results in 15 minutes and it, it's starting to become available. But I mean, that was the fundamental question. And then he goes off and he creates and it becomes a story instead about the, the, the president insulting a reporter. I, I don't care about the insults. You know this. You don't care when you get insulted. The story is not about us. Uh, the, 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 the serious duty is to, you know, try to report the news and follow the facts. Yeah, and 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 I know that 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 hard work's going on in the White House briefing room and all around the country, um, as as we speak in these unprecedented times. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have Doctor Zeke Emanuel. Uh, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Doctor Zeke Emanuel, who is the co-host of a brand new podcast debuting this week, calling "Making the Call," a weekly podcast. He's also, uh, of course, uh, one of the famous brothers, Emanuel. Uh, key architect of the Affordable Care Act uh, and a professor and vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Emanuel. It's lovely to be here. So you uh, said something recently that kind of made me fall out of my chair a little bit. You said that uh, essentially life may not get back to normal in this country for another year and a half. What's your assessment? How long is this pandemic going to be haunting us? This seems to be something that's bothering everyone, but I'm only echoing what Tony Fauci has said, what an internal you know, U.S. White House memo has said, which is we're not going to get back to normal, the sort of before COVID, the B.C. kind of normal, where we go traveling, we go to restaurants, we go to concerts, we go to religious services, we go on cruises until we have a vaccine that protects everyone. That's 18 months. It's not going to be sooner Anyone who tells you, well, we're going to have a vaccine in three or four months, that's just not the reality of how biology and research works. Um, So that's what we need to get back to normal. Now, that doesn't mean that between now and then we're all going to be locked down and, and, you know, have this physical distancing, wearing masks and everything. We will be doing that for a while, but parts, I believe, parts of the economy will open up um, slowly and with protections and with public health measures in case we see an a flare-up of uh, or a resurgence of COVID-19. Um, so that's, I think, the way to think about it. And, you know, I it's unfortunate that we haven't had our, you know, elected officials willing to be upfront about that, but it's true in their internal memos that that's the way they're thinking. Tony Fauci has said, when we get a vaccine, we'll return to normal. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm just stating what I think every public health and economic expert who really thinks about it believes is true okay well no, there, there's a there's a huge there's a lot of space between normal and where we are now yeah uh, so you're talking about when we get to the point where 
there are there's not only a vaccine, but it's a vaccine that's available to everybody. Uh, yes. What about what about next steps? What happens on April 30th, which is when the CDC uh, guidelines would expire if they're not if they're not extended? What happens on April 30th? You mean the, 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 we first had the president's 15-day plan, and then we had the 30-day plan. And, right. you know, the 30-day plan is going to expire, and we're going to have to renew it because some places in the country will have reached the top of the curve and coming back down. Some places in the country won't have reached the top of the curve. You know, and I would put high up on that a lot of rural places, a lot of places that have, you know, people haven't traveled to and, and got a you know, didn't initiate um, uh, physical distancing early enough and thought that they were going to skate through because there wasn't so much, you know, it was, we're not having a lot of cases. Um, but they're going to have cases just like everyone else. So I think, you know, it's, uh, um, it's not going to, we're going to have to keep the physical distancing for a while. You got to, br- before you can even think about bringing down the uh, physical distancing, the wearing the masks and all the other things, uh, reopening schools or or uh, non-essential uh, businesses, you have to bring the ca- the new cases down to zero. You have to have a structure, an infrastructure that allows you to test and quickly quarantine and isolate people who are suspected or test positive for COVID. Um, we're not there yet, and uh, so I think I think that's uh, as I've written, that's likely to be June. So if if by June, I mean, what what happens? Let, let's just go through this gradual reopening. I mean, are we going to see? Are we going to see? Let's look at it in terms of sports. Are we going to see baseball? Is there going to be a baseball season? Not with fans for the so entirety you, of it. Yeah, I don't think you can have fans there. Too too many people packed in in a small space. It's like. Oh, just drop one coronavirus case there and you'll have 250 coronavirus carriers going out into the world. That's a really bad scenario. So you might have baseball being televised with no fans. It's a very different game. And and the political conventions, which are now the Democrats have moved to August, the Republicans at the end of August. What happens there? Dr. Emanuel's prediction, you're going to have a virtual convention, something totally different that we've never experienced. And let me move back a little bit further. Uh, the election is in November. Um, what do you? What's the outlook there? It's obviously going to be well before we have a, a, a vaccine. Yeah, I think we're going to have. We need to plan now for. A, and and by the way, Wisconsin that happened uh, on April seventh is no model. I mean, there it's interesting. They went from 180 voting spots in Milwaukee to five and long, long, long lines. You're going to have to have a different model, either voting by Internet, voting by mail, uh, voting early so that people have a chance to go over time. Um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, this is unfortunately a perfect model for Republican suppression of voting um, uh, because, you know, it's easy to do. Uh, we're going to be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if you're, you know, you're not going to stand in line for hours and hours because we don't have a lot of spots and we don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of the um, uh, uh, people monitoring the voting process in the precinct. The precinct workers are older. You know, they're not going to show up and put themselves at risk. I mean, this is a perfect storm uh, situation for uh, 
you know, just not getting a lot of those people who want to vote, even though everyone was predicting this would be a super record turnout because of the high stakes of this election. And, and do do the number of corona, I mean, the, the, the modeling would suggest that the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths, uh, that, that we will eventually, whether it be uh, uh, May, June, we, we, will, we will be tapering way off. Yes. So, so you'll be tapering way off, and then people are going to very naturally want to open up again. Um, so they're, we're going to, you know, allow non-essential businesses to open, and we're going to have more tra- travel uh, uh, within cities and between cities. And then you're going to see a resurgence. You're going to see the roller coaster happen. And you've seen this overseas. We've gotten a, a preview of this. So there are two things. One, look at Singapore as a good example of a place that did very well initially and then eased up and suddenly had 10 times more cases in March um, uh, than they had previously. Um, And then they had to, on Friday, they reclosed schools and reclosed non-essential businesses. All right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have the same thing. Come May, June, we'll reopen, relax some of the physical distancing measures, Maybe not in every place because, as I said, some place will be lagging and they will just be in the midst of the crisis. Uh, but you'll ease it up and then you'll have a resurgence and a, and a flare. If we have good testing and good uh, ability to, to quarantine people, you know, that might be moderated. But I think that's, that is our, that's the real worry. That's why I don't think you're going to like, oh, let's open everything up um, because it, it's... Uh, you know, not going to happen that way. Dr. Emanuel, it's Rick Klein here. I, I, I'm curious, someone who's worked inside a government and now uh, from the outside, when you watch the, the daily response from federal health officials, what goes through your mind? Are there things that should be said now and done now from the federal level that are glaring in your mind that, uh, that, that aren't happening? Well, I do think we need a more strategic plan for what do we do in the next 18 months. I notice that every bailout bill seems to be, you know, it's like we're going to bail out and then we have this bailout for small businesses keeping people on their payroll eight weeks. We have an extension of unemployment 13 weeks as if somehow at the end of, you know, three months, it's going to be magically different. This is an 18-month process, and unless you're realistic in thinking about an 18-month process. So we need more strategic planning in that regard. And we need, it again, to focus on um, very, very high-priority things and bring everyone together. You know, lots of people are asking, why don't we have a, a home-based serology test so I can actually test, like with a pregnancy test or a diabetes glucose monitor or in the developing world, you have a, a malaria test. I put a drop of blood on and I can tell literally within seconds, if not minutes, whether I've got the antibody. That would be incredibly effective. Here we are, the big United States. We don't have that. I've heard that it's already available in China. Really? The Chinese are faster at this than us? What's going on? Uh, this is our sweet spot, you know, biotech, diagnostics and, and uh, stuff. Um, so there are a whole series of things I think we need, you know, uh, to, to be thinking about. Um, the immunity passports that people are talking about, or the immunity certification. You've had COVID, you're not infected, and you're immune to it. That would be really important to identify those people. 
they can be the vanguard of opening up the economy. Um, so I think there's a whole series of those kind of considerations. No evidence that the administration is, uh, is uh, doing that. They obviously have, you know, the other thing that I find frustrating is the president constantly says, oh, the governors ought to be doing that, the governors. There are things only the federal government can do, and the federal government in this case is competing with the states for, you know, new ventilators for PPE, and that's not helpful. The federal government ought to be bulk purchasing it and ought to be um, then distributing it based upon need at the moment, and and that's what we should be seeing. And instead, it's like, hey, governors, you know, you're supposed to do it, and you had an op-ed, I think, in the New York Times by Nikki Haley, oh, I don't use don't rely on the federal government. That's not their job. Wrong. That is their job. That's why it's a federal strategic stockpile. That is their job. That is why it's a FEMA, federal, right? That is what the federal government is best at, in part, if for nothing else. Federal government can run deficits and states cannot run deficits in financing, and they're really strained at the moment. And Dr. Emanuel, another another debate we've seen restarted in 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 recent weeks is the debate over what the healthcare system should look like in this country. As someone who was so involved in in crafting Obamacare, I'm curious your thoughts when you hear Senator Sanders, who who has now left the presidential race, saying, "Well, this is an argument for Medicare for all. This is exactly why you need to have that version of uh, of federal healthcare, uh, single payer healthcare." What's what's your sense of that about about whether that actually is an argument for it? And, and was the Obamacare system put in place with, with any kind of thinking about what it would mean to have uh, these sort of pandemics locking down a nation? Well, certainly uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act was not put in place thinking about a pandemic. I can say that categorically, having been involved and also having thought about pandemics. Second, it is, I mean, COVID-19 is a great argument for universal health care coverage that isn't holy and doesn't allow, you know, millions of people to slip through. Um, it is an argument for simplification of the system. I don't know that it's an argument for Medicare for all. You can imagine a simplified system where you might think about Medicaid for all uh, who don't have insurance and that, we're pers- you know, if someone shows up, you don't know what insurance, they're on Medicaid until you can sort out whether they've got an employer who should be covering them or they're on Medicare, and maybe we fold in all of the other structures we have. Maybe even we do federalize Medicaid in that regard. Um, so I think it, it's definitely, and, and here Senator Sanders is right, we definitely need to have a universal coverage system where all 100% of people uh, in the United States are covered. I don't know that that says the only way we can get there is Medicare for all. I think I'm a little more skeptical about that. So, uh, Dr. Manuel, before you go, and we feel like we have so much more to talk about, so we hope you'll come back on as we, I think we're in for the long haul, as you pointed out, in dealing with this. But uh, can you, can you give, us, uh, give us a little uh, preview? What, what is, uh, what's the podcast all about? What are you trying to do each week? Well, Making the Call is a brand new podcast, and, you know, it's my, myself and, and Jonathan Moreno. We're two bioethicists. We've been doing this for uh, donkey's years. Um, both of us have been thinking actually about pandemics, about the difficult choices pandemics pose, whether it's allocating resources, quarantining, involving the military and civilian affairs, um, and many other issues that arise. Um, uh, and so we, we've been thinking about this. So, you know, a lot of people want to know how to, how to think about these uh, medical ethical issues. And so it's a podcast where we take a real live case and then we 
discuss it among ourselves, but also with experts uh, directly about these issues. How do you allocate you know, ventilators? How do you think about quarantine, isolation? What are the laws in the United States that are relevant um, to these issues? Uh, what are the ethical issues that might or might not correspond to the law? Um, so I think it, it, you know, if, if, if COVID-19 has raised any ethical issues for you, you've been debating ethical issues with the person you're living with or someone on social media, and you want to know how people who've been, really been, are experts in this and really been thinking about it that might um, give you some additional insights, uh, that's a pot, it's a podcast for you. All right. Sounds great. We appreciate you coming on. Fantastic. Talk Thank you, you guys. So, so Rick, you know, the, the question is the, the, the very first question we started with here is what happens on April 30th? I mean, it seems clear to everybody you have to have some kind of an extension of, of the CDC guidelines on social distancing. Um, but the president, I just get the sense is is ready to go i mean he he you know he, he wants to start he you know he clearly was reluctant to uh extend these uh these guidelines the first time uh what what, what does it look like and are we prepared as a, as a as a country for this and if the number of cases are going down 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 and it looks like we've gotten out of it how do you how do you prevent people from having huge gatherings again and and if those gatherings happen you know are we are we back into the same situation again i mean i i don't i don't know if we're anywhere near prepared for the next step as a country here and i think john as you know well i mean this is where the patchwork of state and local authorities taking over could have real consequences because you'll have the federal guidance that's really itching to get the economy moving again uh the president's already been talking about that about the need to Get things started. Light at the end of the tunnel. He's the cheerleader in chief that, that, that's out there. We've seen a number of states very reluctant to shut things down, um, particularly in Republican-leading states, uh, particularly in southern states. We've seen a number of them not shut things down at all, uh, hope that people just use common sense rather than those orders. There has not been a federal shutdown. And if there isn't federal guidance, to Dr. Emanuel's point, to, to, to reopening things, you know, it, it, the analogy that someone made to me recently is, you, you remember when there used to be smoking sections on the airplane? You know, we, we were right. all taken in the smoke, right? Uh, so uh, the, the idea that, you know, Florida could reopen or Alabama could reopen or just a city or a county could reopen, in this country with this connectivity, we know how fast things can spread. And uh, I, think, I think Dr. Emanuel makes a smart point when he says that until or unless we talk about this holistically in the 18-month sense, uh, it, it's just not, we're not going to be able to stamp this thing out. And, and our political process, our political system is not built for that. Uh, they're, they're built for immediate, uh, immediate gratification, immediate returns. Congress comes in, let's get that money out the door. Let's make it happen. Uh, there isn't a sense of even medium term planning in the, in the midst of a crisis like this. No, we're never good at it. And especially not now. All right, Rick, that's all the time we have for powerhouse politics. Our thanks to the Powerhouse Politics team, including Avery Miller and Trevor Hastings. We will be back next week.